This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Well, good afternoon. I'm uh, Jim Plummer, the Dean of the School of Engineering. And on behalf of the School of Engineering and the Call to Service Initiative, welcome. We're delighted to have all of you here, and we're anxiously looking forward to hearing uh, Ellen Ochoa talk to us in just a few minutes. The uh, National Call to Serve effort of which Stanford is, uh, part in which Stanford is participating aims to encourage students to explore careers in government, and we're delighted uh, today to have a, a tremendously uh, interesting example of one of our graduates who's done exactly that with her career. I hope that many of you, when you graduate from Stanford, will consider careers in, in public service. There are many Stanford graduates who have done so, uh, taking paths working with local communities or with our state government or with national government agencies. And as, as one example, I think there are two of our graduates who are here this afternoon, Jerry Yan and Mike Rogers. Are you here somewhere? Uh, right, right here. And they're both working currently at NASA Ames, and they'll be available afterwards uh, for those of you students who want to talk to them about uh, careers, either at NASA or more broadly in, in government agencies. Ellen Ochoa is quite a remarkable person. I've known her for a lot of years, I think. Um, I, tried, I was trying to remember exactly how many when I was asked to introduce her here uh, this afternoon, but it's, it's been a number of years. She uh, was raised in Southern California and did her undergraduate work in physics at UC San Diego, or San Diego State. And she then came up here to Stanford to her graduate work in electrical engineering, where she received both master's and PhD degrees in the early 1980s. <clears throat> her PhD work was on optical systems for information processing, and she continued that work after she left Stanford, actually, when she spent some time working at Sandia National Labs and then later at uh, NASA Ames Research Center. In 1991, her life changed completely, and she became an astronaut. And as all of you know, since that time, she has flown on four shuttle missions, and I'm sure she'll say a little bit about that this afternoon. She's had roles as mission specialist and payload commander, and she's currently the deputy director of flight crew operations at NASA. Now, if that weren't enough, uh, she's also a classical flutist, a uh, private pilot, and a member of the Stanford Board of Trustees. In fact, the reason she's on campus yesterday and today is because of a Board of Trustees meeting that she's been participating in. But most importantly, Ellen is one of our graduates, and we're tremendously proud of her. Please join me in welcoming Ellen Ochoa. Well, thank you. I'm certainly very, very happy to be back at Stanford today. You wouldn't be able to tell it was February by going outside. It's beautiful. And I'm happy to be representing NASA as part of the Call to Serve program. Um, I'd like to start out by thanking the Haas Center for Public Service for arranging my visit, and especially to Megan Fogarty, who worked all the details, and also the many, many organizations here at Stanford who co-sponsored uh, my visit today. I also wanted to um, again uh, point out Dr. Jerry Ann, who is a colleague of mine from years past, and uh, Dr. Mike Rogers. And they'll both be here and be happy to talk with you after the presentation about their career paths and, and how they got um, to NASA and what their work is like in government as well. So the question is here in the heart of Silicon Valley, what would motivate people to work for the government? For me, the reason was simply stated a century ago by Theodore Roosevelt. 
who said, far and away the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Two years ago, President Bush announced a new vision for space exploration that will involve people and machines exploring the moon, Mars, and beyond. The first steps along that path call for using the space shuttle to complete the assembly of the International Space Station, while at the same time starting development of a new spacecraft that will take astronauts to the moon about 10 years from now. Surface habitats will be set up after that, and astronauts staying for up to six months at a time will balance their time between lunar science, testing methods to use lunar resources, and demonstrating technology and operational concepts that will be needed for subsequent missions to Mars. Especially to those of you who are engineers, I don't know what else I could add that would be more compelling as a reason to choose government service for a career. Who wouldn't want to be involved in such an adventure, whether as an astronaut, an aerospace engineer designing a new generation of launch vehicle, a scientist studying the South Lunar Pole to learn about the moon's origins, or studying Martian soil for possible signs of previous life forms, an energy specialist developing new methods of powering spacecraft or habitats, a robotics engineer developing explorer assistance or a means of manufacturing on the moon or Mars. And you don't have to wait to be a part of this endeavor. NASA has a number of student programs that allow students to work either in labs at their universities or at NASA facilities as researchers, engineers, or in operational jobs, both as undergraduates and graduate students. In particular, the Student Cooperative Education Program, or co-op program, is an incredibly popular way to work in different jobs at different NASA sites and to get first priority for hiring by NASA upon graduation. Even before working with NASA, you can be tackling the most fascinating technology issues that we face if you choose to enter one of the challenges that NASA has offered with prize money attached. Just a few months ago, teams of engineers competed to build robots that could climb a cable powered only by the beam from a searchlight. And other teams created high-strength, low-weight tethers that could one day be used as a space elevator to get materials into space. There are now ongoing competitions to build a better astronaut spacesuit glove, to assemble a structure using multiple robotic agents remotely controlled by humans, and using communications equipment that simulate the Earth-Moon time delays, and competition to design and build an autonomously operating aerial vehicle to fly a roller coaster flight path using only visual navigation systems, since we don't anticipate setting up a global positioning system around Mars. Stanford was so successful in the DARPA Grand Challenge for Autonomous Vehicles that I have no doubt a team of Stanford students could successfully compete in these challenges as well. NASA and Stanford have a strong alliance. NASA is the largest federal employer of Stanford engineering alumni, and Stanford has produced 18 astronauts. Seven of those are women, making Stanford the number one school in the country for producing women astronauts. And all have achieved distinction. Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. Eileen Collins, the first woman space shuttle commander. Mae Jemison, the first African-American woman astronaut. 
Susan Helms, the first military woman in space. I'm the first woman astronaut of Hispanic heritage. Tammy Jernigan, at the time of her last flight, held the record for the most time on the space shuttle of any astronaut, man or woman. And Barbara Morgan, slated to fly in a year or so, is the first educator astronaut. The Stanford-NASA connection is also a very personal one for me. It was while I was a graduate student at Stanford that I decided I wanted to apply to the astronaut program. I came here after receiving a physics degree from San Diego State, a couple of years after the first shuttle astronauts were selected, including the first women. That was a notable event for me, even though I had never considered the idea of an astronaut career then. And I knew I was coming to a school where astronauts, including Sally Ride, had come from. In my first year here, astronaut Owen Garrett spoke on campus, and it was amazing to hear his stories of Skylab. Still, it wasn't until some of the other graduate students I knew were talking about applying and suggested that I look into it that I really found out what NASA looks for in an astronaut, realized that I was eligible to apply or would be as soon as I finished my degree. And it was then that I decided that's what I really wanted to do. Of course, I figured the odds were so slim that I didn't ever expect to be selected. On the other hand, I figured the odds weren't much different than getting tenure as a professor at a good engineering school. So I pursued a career as a research engineer after turning in my application to NASA, which I think I turned in the day I also turned in my thesis dissertation. So with a PhD specializing in optical information processing, I initially took a job at a small uh, research group at Sandia National Labs across the bay in Livermore. About two years later, NASA wrote to me to ask me to come interview for the astronaut class of 1987. I got to spend a week at Johnson Space Center getting the most thorough medical exam of my life writing an essay on why I wanted to be an astronaut, which is mostly notable for the fact that although I had written many technical papers, I hadn't write, written an essay in many, many years. Uh, interviewing before the selection board, which is, mostly consists of senior astronauts, and most memorably, talking with astronauts and seeing the places they worked and trained. Prior to that, I really didn't have that much of an idea of what an astronaut did on a day-to-day -day basis. So that trip really gave me an opportunity to see their offices, um, see where they trained, and, and find out firsthand what it was that life as an astronaut would be like. I wasn't selected that year, but I was inspired enough to obtain a pilot's license and seek a job with NASA. I was interested in working in space exploration, whether or not I ever got selected as an astronaut. And about a year later, I moved to head a research group at NASA Ames Research Center. Two years later, after another interview week at NASA, I was selected for the astronaut program along with 22 other people. Our class of 1990, nicknamed the Hairballs, had seven pilots and 16 mission specialists. About half were military and half civilian, and five of the 23 were women. In addition to people with military test pilot experience, we had two medical doctors, several flight test engineers, a planetary geologist who worked for the CIA, doing what we never found out, a chemical engineer from a national lab, and a university physics professor who helped develop an experiment for the shuttle. The initial couple years were spent mostly in training. Some of it was very much like being in school. We attended lectures, um, read workbooks, and trained one-on-one -on -one with trainers. But some of it was a bit unconventional for someone with an engineering research background. 
Those of us who weren't career pilots learned to fly backseat in the T-38 jets. This allowed us to become familiar with high-performance aircraft, learn communication and navigation techniques, and practice crew coordination. Training for emergency situations, including short courses in water and land survival. We learned how to eject from the plane, deploy parachutes, special techniques for surviving on land or water, like making sleeping bags and tents from our parachutes, and practiced getting hoisted out of the water by a helicopter. We also got an introduction to weightlessness by flying on the KC-135. Most of you probably know it by its nickname, the Vomit Comet. This airplane flies a series of about 40 parabolas per mission, and you experience about 25 seconds of zero-g as you go over the top of each one of those trajectories. It can also be flown to simulate the gravity on, the Mar on Mars and on the Moon. After the initial basic training, the pilots then go on to train in the shuttle training aircraft. This is a Gulfstream G2 with control systems that have been modified to simulate the handling qualities of the shuttle on landing. The mission specialists like me go through training programs in robotics and in spacewalking. We had both hardware and software facilities to learn to fly the shuttle robot arm. And we have a special pool where astronauts, after getting a scuba qualification, practice spacewalking ta tasks while fully suited. The pool that we currently use is the largest indoor swimming pool in the world, 200 feet long by 100 feet wide, 40 feet deep. Most of the training, as I mentioned, was focused on learning the shuttle systems. Along with the workbooks and the lectures, we had classes in single system trainers. These are mock-ups of the shuttle cockpit where systems are simulated with math models. We learned where all the switches are, what they do, and when you use them, both in normal operations and in troubleshooting and emergency situations. There are over 2,000 switches and circuit breakers in the cockpit, so this is a bit of a daunting task at first. Once we get some familiarity with each of the systems separately, then we're put into the shuttle mission simulator, which is a high-fidelity trainer, again, that looks just like the shuttle cockpit, and it models all of the systems simultaneously. Here we improve our understanding of shuttle operations, learn crew coordination, and practice all phases of the mission, from before liftoff to roll out on the runway after landing. I've been fortunate to be able to put all this training to use on four space shuttle flights between 1993 and 2002. My first two flights in 1993 and 94, studied atmospheric chemistry and particularly the problem of ozone depletion as part of NASA's Mission to Planet Earth program. We also brought instruments to measure the amount of energy coming from the sun in an effort to separate the effects of the atmosphere of natural phenomena from human activities. In addition to monitoring all the experiments, I used the shuttle's robot arm to deploy and retrieve free-flying science satellites during each mission, studying in one case the solar corona and in the other the dynamics of Earth's middle atmosphere. While none of us on those flights were atmospheric chemists, the goals and basic operations of the instruments that we flew were familiar to me with my research background in Fourier optics. And part of my job during the flight was to downlink informational segments for the public on each instrument. I think the principal investigators were glad to have someone on board who could knowledgeably discuss a Fourier transform spectrometer, given that their other choices were mostly test pilots. 
In fact, my first crew consisted of a marine test pilot, two ex-Navy test pilots, a British laboratory astrophysicist, and me. So just designing our mission patch was an interesting collaboration. Our commander wanted it to look as much like the Marine Corps emblem as possible, and especially wanted to have an eagle on it. My view was that this was an international mission. We were studying an international environmental problem, and several of the instruments came from European scientists, so putting such a nationalistic symbol was probably not appropriate. His response was, well, it wouldn't have to be an attack eagle. It could be a nurturing eagle. <laughs> My second two flights in 1999 and 2002 were part of the assembly of the International Space Station, during which we transferred supplies to prepare for the first crew to live on board, and later in 2002 added a major piece of truss equipment. I operated both the shuttle and station robot arms during those flights to help install the truss and to move spacewalking crew members around to assist in their assembly tasks. It was amazing to see how the space station had grown between, those first, uh, between that first flight in 1999 and in 2002, from, from an uninhabited two-module spacecraft into a gleaming 150-foot-long laboratory and home to three crew members. And now it also has about 130 feet of truss structure that will run perpendicular to the pressurized part of the station. That truss will eventually grow to over 300 feet and hold the large solar arrays that will provide power to laboratories built by Japan and Europe. For those of us who have had a chance to perform science experiments on the shuttle, the advantages of a space station are quite clear. We can now perform experiments over weeks or months instead of a few days, greatly increasing the amount of data produced, our ability to interact with the science, and the chance that exciting, perhaps very unexpected science discoveries will be made. With the new emphasis on exploration to the Moon and Mars, we'll be focusing the research on understanding and mitigating the effects of the space environment, including microgravity, on humans, as well as using the station as a testbed for technologies needed for exploration. But the objectives and benefits of this station go beyond research. There's an unprecedented cooperation among the international partners in this endeavor, primarily involving Russia, Japan, Canada, and the countries of the European Space Agency. All of these are providing major modules or pieces of equipment to the station, and astronauts from all these countries will be participating as crew members. Currently, we have two crew members on board the International Space Station, U.S. astronaut Bill MacArthur, who is a member of my hairball class, and Russian cosmonaut Valery Tokarev, whom I flew with on my third space shuttle flight in 1999. They launched from Kazakhstan last October and will be landing there in April once their replacement crew arrives. In order to give you an idea of what their home is like, I'd like to show you a movie of my flight in 2002. The pressurized living area of the station hasn't changed since then, and you'll see the main working area for Bill, the U.S. laboratory, where he performs experiments, operates the robot arm, views the Earth, and even sleeps. While I was there visiting with my shuttle crew of seven in 2002, there were three crew members on board already, and you'll see them in the movie. The uh, commander of the station that time was cosmonaut Yuri Onofranco, and there were two U.S. astronauts, Dan Bursch and Carl Waltz, who were also members of my astronaut class. So we got to have a hairball reunion in space. 
My crewmates on the shuttle were uh, Commander Mike Bloomfield, Pilot Steve Frick, and Mission Specialist Jerry Ross, Lee Morin, Steve Smith, who has three degrees from Stanford, and Rex Walheim, who happened to be a Berkeley grad. We had a fun time training with the Stanford-Cal rivalry, especially given that Steve and Rex were spacewalking partners. Unfortunately for Rex, he was outnumbered. When they would go for a practice run in the huge water tank, the very first part of the run is they're just sort of floating in the tank and they get weighed out. They get weights put in different part of the suits so that they become neutrally buoyant. So for a while they're just sort of floating there while the divers are helping them. We'd arrange to play all right now through the speaker system into their helmets and Rex would usually announce he was feeling nauseous. On the actual spacewalking days in space, we came together as a team and the wake-up music from the ground included both the Cal fight song and All Right Now. The purpose of this flight, as I mentioned, was to add the first piece of the truss, a structure that we called S0, so you'll see me referring to the S0 truss when I narrate this movie. The entire truss, when it's complete, will not only provide power to many laboratories through the large solar arrays, but it also contains a railway that the robot arm uses to move up and down the truss to service equipment. Once we mechanically attached the truss to the top part of the U.S. laboratory, we, perf we performed a series of four spacewalks to complete the structural attachment and hook up all kinds of power and data cables to power up all the equipment on the truss. And then we tried out this um, railway for the first time. And you'll see just a brief portion of that in the movie. So at this time, I'd like to go ahead and show the movie. I'll be narrating it to you and then talk a little bit more uh, after we're done. I'm not sure. Who am I? Yes. Who am I pointing to? Great. So that was our mission patch. Each patch is designed by the crew, as I mentioned. This was April of uh, 2002. You can see the um, Atlantis shuttle on the pad. Here's our crew. In the front right is the commander, Mike Bloomfield, the rest of the crew behind him. We're walking out to the van that takes us from the crew quarters out to the launch pad at that point. Here's a few pictures of us strapping in. Up on the flight deck, the pilot, Steve Frick. Down on the mid-deck, you see some of the folks strapping in down there. Of course, we're on our backs because of the position of the shuttle. And at about uh, T minus seven seconds, the uh, space shuttle, the three space shuttle main engines, fire up. Once they're up and operating at 100%, that's when the solid rocket boosters light, and that's when you actually lift off from the pad. So I'm the middle person right there, right behind the commander and pilot, and right here, when you see that extra vibration, that's when the solid rocket boosters lit off. The first vibration was from the main engines. So the solid rockets run quite a bit rougher than the um, liquid-fueled engines, and there's quite a bit of vibration in that first couple minutes. You can see us turning to get into the proper orbit, 51.6 degrees um, from the equator, to rendezvous with the space station. If you look closely, you can see uh, kind of some of the shock waves moving down the, um, the stack there as we climb up through our maximum dynamic pressure. If 
And then about two minutes in, the solid rockets have used up all their fuel, and so they separate away from the rest of the shuttle, fall back into the ocean off the coast of Florida, and are picked up and refurbished for future flights. For another six and a half minutes, the shuttles run on the liquid engines. After a total of eight and a half minutes, we're in space, traveling at 17,500 miles per hour. And one of the first things we do is open the payload bay doors, as you see there. And a lot of that is for thermal um, heat rejection into space. This is uh, the next day. The commander is sitting in the seat, um, performing some of the burns that are going to get us on a trajectory to start the rendezvous with the space station. Down in the mid-deck, you got to hold on. Um, it's really only a fraction of a G, but when you're in zero G, you really notice it. Now, this is on uh, the third day, and we're actually in the sort of the final part of the rendezvous with the space station. The commander and pilot and me as the flight en engineer are working together very closely, looking at all the information from the sensors that are telling us how far away we are from the station, how quickly we're closing, and exactly what our trajectory is. Um, once we get to a certain point, the commander takes over manually and is flying by looking out um, the back windows, essentially, uh, and flying the shuttle in towards it. And this is a view of the shuttle uh, from the space station, from the crew member that was up there looking at us. And this is our view of the space station as we're getting close. And sort of that circular part on the end in the middle is where we're going to come up and dock with. This is looking out the aft windows up on the shuttle flight deck, and the part that you can see coming into view is that circular part of the space station. So it's just like three or four feet outside your window is this um, huge space station out there. And this is the final part of the docking with the two pieces coming together, the shuttle part on the bottom and the station part on the top. Our commander was very happy with the with the way the rendezvous went. But uh, uh, after we perform, um, we make sure we have a hard mate and perform some leak checks, then we're ready to open the hatches and the two commanders, of one of each vehicle, greet each other. And then it was time for us to move into the space station and get to work. These uh, crew members hadn't seen other faces for four months other than the three of them, so they um, gave us a very hearty welcome as we moved into that, the U.S. laboratory there of the space station. And then we got to work um, starting to move some supplies. You can not only hold them in your hand, but between your knees, so it's a little bit more efficient up in space than uh, down on Earth. Now, this is the S0 truss on the end of the uh, station's robot arm. This is actually a sunrise in real time. You can see how quickly the lighting changes when you're traveling that quickly around the Earth. And uh, just a few minutes later, when we're in full sunlight, um, it's about 40 uh, feet long. And uh, so this is me in the space station operating the robot arm and uh, starting to move that big truss around, getting ready for the install. Now, we don't have any windows that we're looking at as we're operating this robot arm. So we're having to use cameras, oftentimes not in the most optimal of places, um, and trying to integrate all that information to make sure we're clear of structure and performing the robotic tasks. Another view of the um, truss segment on the end of the station robot arm. And down below, you can see the shuttle robot arm, which we were using for the two cameras that it has, and helping to use those camera views uh, to monitor the progress. You know, sometimes it's hard not to get distracted by the views of the Earth. You can see the Middle East back there um, in the Red Sea and the um, Gulf of Sinai and all that. 
So this is kind of getting toward the final part of the install. What we're looking at is the bottom of the space station and the, and the truss is moving into the top part. You can see that claw on the right-hand side there. It's going to grab a hold of a bar and help perform the initial part of the um, attachment. Now we have some V-guides over there on the right that we're moving in and using that to perform the final alignment of attaching this truss onto the top of the laboratory. And Dan and I, Dan was actually at the controls for that final part of the install, working together at the uh, robotic workstation. Over the next few days, as I mentioned, we had a series of four spacewalks. And so here what you see is the hatch opening from the airlock on the station into space. And um, I, I think that's actually Steve Smith, uh, Stanford grad, waving at us there as he's coming out of the hatch. Now, for these spacewalks, we generally had one crew member on the end of the robot arm and another crew member free-floating, attached, um, of course, through cables, but um, otherwise free-floating. And uh, Carl Waltz and I here are operating the robot arm, moving one of the crew members around during the spacewalks. And a lot of these views that you see here are from helmet cameras. Um, so these are the crew members looking out, um, basically what they're seeing, and you can see him holding his two hands in front of him. He's holding a, a cable tray that weighs about 400 pounds on Earth, and you can see him grabbing it with just one hand there. Um, on the station and, and um, getting ready to move it and attach it onto the uh, station. Inside, we're essentially choreographing it. We could see parts of the EVA from um, the shuttle, although um, since we're operating the robot arm in a different part over on the station, we couldn't view any of it um, by looking out the windows, but the, the choreographer essentially could. Another view of the, um, some of the work. We were mating up a whole bunch of power cables and data cables, and this just gives you an example of um, some of the work that they were doing to hook up all those cables. As I mentioned, we were also completing the structural attachment. We had two struts, two struts that had to be bolted down. You can see the bolts right there in that um, picture that they then had to drive with a, essentially a power uh, screwdriver, which you can see here. Looks a lot like what you might use here on Earth, except lots more expensive because it works in, um, in space and can take the thermal temperature swings that we experience up there. Here, uh, Lee Morin is on the end of the arm. He's holding a V-shaped piece of equipment you can kind of see there, and it was taking me about 20, 25 minutes to move him from one side of the station to the other. So as he said, that was his favorite 20 minutes of the spacewalk because he just got to look at the beautiful Earth the whole time during that ride. Uh, on another spacewalk, we were reconfiguring the power to the station arm, um, just changing the way it was routed. And uh, so this is one of the spacewalkers opening up uh, essentially a cable tray on board. And he's being moved around by the shuttle robot arm operator, Steve Frick, since we had to obviously power down the station robot arm as we were changing out the power distribution channels. Now here's another helmet cam view. Um, Jerry Ross is holding a light in his left hand, which you can see at the bottom of the screen. We're going to attach it to the outside of the station to help provide light for future spacewalks and um, camera views of the station. This is kind of the view that I had from one of the cameras. Um, since I was moving him around on the arm, I could see Jerry and him holding this light. So you can kind of compare the two different views. You can see the nose of the shuttle down there on the upper right, kind of the view that he had. 
um, as he's moving in toward um, the S0 truss to attach this light. So this is the end of one of the EVAs. You can see the station arm moving away after they've um, dropped off their crew member and the two crew members are going back inside the airlock. Of course, then they'll close the hatch. They'll pressurize what we call the crew lock and then they'll open up an inner hatch and be able to come into this area called the equipment lock. And that's where we'll, we'll actually hook them up to um, oxygen and electrical power that's now being provided by the station instead of by their suits and help them out of their suits. Now here's that railroad I was talking to you about. We call it the mobile transporter. This is actually about five times as fast as it moves in real life, but um, gives you an idea of it moving along the length of that truss. And on a later flight that year, they added another piece of equipment and uh, then actually attached the robot arm to that railroad. Now a few pictures of uh, life on board the shuttle. This is in the mid-deck. We brought up a Texas barbecue meal and invited the space station crew members over. You can see we're wearing our bandanas. And we had uh, barbecued beef and, uh, and uh, a menu that kind of went around with the rodeo. Um, this is Lee washing his hair. Uh, in the mid-deck we have a little uh, squirt gun, essentially, that you can use with a hose. Allows you to do that down there. Um, this is the exercise you can see very much like a cyclogometer you'd use here, except you don't need a seat. And uh, now Lee is over at the galley, so he's got some food in there that we've added water to to rehydrate, and now he's heating it up inside the galley and is passing it out to folks as we're enjoying a meal. You can see the drink bags, the, those sort of aluminum-looking bags with straws inside that can be clamped off when you're not drinking so that the liquid stays inside. And here Rex and I do one of our many housekeeping tasks. tasks. We have to clean the filters periodically, so we're using this vacuum cleaner. So as air circulates through the cabin and it picks up lint and other things, um, uh, these filters pick it up and we clean them off every couple days. And here Steve Frick is changing out some lithium hydroxide canisters, and that's what scrubs the carbon dioxide from the air and um, keeps it as good breathable air for us. This is Jerry just enjoying zero-G over in the uh, airlock on the space station. I think he was waiting for crew members to come back in after a space walk. This is Rex. He was actually doing a video conference with his two kids on the ground. He was showing them what it's like to be in space. And Steve Smith here is um, showing you if you don't actually clamp off your drink bag, what's going to happen? The water's going to come out and, of course, due to the surface tension, form a sphere. He's just throwing a couple of M&Ms in there. <laughs> Sometimes you can throw goldfish crackers and make your own aquarium. <laughs> Here's a view of us sleeping in space. Uh, we have people just attached on the floor. I was on the ceiling, um, various places, just finding a place to sleep for the night. And this is um, essentially about a week after we arrived at the station. We had completed our work there, and it was time for us to go home. So we closed the hatch, making sure we had the right number of folks on each side and got ready for the part of our mission where we would undock from the station. Undock is very similar to docking. There's really a team of three or four people who are working together, um, looking at all the sensors, um, going through procedures. And this time the pilot, Steve Fricks, gets to fly the undock. And so here he is at the sort of the aft controls of the shuttle. And this is the target that he'll be using 
Um, same when we used on docking to make sure that we um, are staying within very tight controls on uh, roll pitch and yaw as well as um, um, translation errors. And you can see us backing away. Of course, it looks like the station's backing away, but in fact, we're the ones doing the maneuvering here on the shuttle. This will be about five, uh, 400 feet away. You can see how brightly that gets lit when the sun comes up. It's kind of like uncloaking. It's really, uh, really wild. Um, so what we did when we moved about 400 feet away is we did an, a fly around of the entire station. We went 360 degrees around it, and the, the point of that was to take photos of the station so we could um, document all the changes that we had done during the spacewalks, which are really helpful um, as we prepare for future spacewalks. Or if there's any issues that come up later, we have a very good idea of the configuration of the station. So you can see somebody operating a laser rangefinder and other people with cameras as we're doing this fly around. So kind of one of the last good views we had of the station, you can see the robot arm there, of course, and the, the truss structure is sort of that um, rectangle right there in the center. That was the piece that we had added on our flight. So after a day of packing up, um, we came to the last day of our flight. Um, so that morning, we got ready for entry. We're closing the payload bay doors. That's one of the last things that we do before we um, get in our seats to come home. can see a little bit of the activity. We're in the mid-deck now, packing up some of the last pieces of equipment. And Steve here is packing up the sleeping bags over on the wall to get them in their landing configuration. Then we start getting, getting everybody in their launch and landing suits. This is putting the commander into the, the basic um, survival pressure suit that we wear on landing. And then we put harnesses on, which will be attached to the parachutes in our seat. This is Steve Frick, the pilot, getting his harness on. It's a little bit harder because you grow a couple inches when you're in space, so you don't fit quite as well in your suit when you're trying to come home. So this is a view out the overhead window. It's a little bit hard to see what's going on, but there's these flashes of plasma gas, really, that are around, um, occur around the tail of the orbiter as you come in through re-entry, caused, of course, by the extremely high friction heat um, as we're slowing down in the atmosphere. Once we've gotten through the major part of the atmosphere and we're down at about 40,000 feet, the commander takes over. So the commander was actually flying in that last view. You can see what he's looking at in his heads-up display looking out the window. And you see um, altitude on, on the uh, right and airspeed on the left. You can see we're going just a little under 300 knots, passing through about 12,000 feet there. And um, as we pass through about 2,000, we start a pull-up because we're at the, the Prior to that, you're essentially dive bombing the ground. So at the very last minute, you've got to start this pull up, and then at about 300 feet, you put the wheels down. You can, I think, see them come down right there as um, we're getting ready for the very final part of the landing. When we touch down, we're still going about uh, 200 knots, uh, which is quite a bit faster than you would in an airliner. And in order to prevent wear and tear on the tire and brakes and make it safer, we have a drag chute, which helps us slow down. But we have a, a very long runway there. It's about three miles long. 
And uh, so it makes for a safe landing spot for us. And that was the end of our 11-day mission on STS-110. If I can have the, the lights come back up, please. Before I, I get into the question and answer phase, and I think there should be plenty, plenty of time for people to ask questions, I just wanted to give you a little idea of what I'm doing now. As someone who's had uh, been fortunate enough to have several space flights, um, I'm number, now one of the senior astronauts in the office. And so about three years ago, I took a management position. I'm the deputy director of flight crew operations. And that is the organization at Johnson Space Center that manages the astronaut office and also our aircraft operations division. We have an airport just a few miles from Johnson Space Center. We have a fleet of about 41 or 42 aircraft uh, out there, mainly the T-38 trainers that the astronauts use but also the shuttle training aircraft, as I mentioned, um, and uh, the pilots who staff the 747 shuttle carrier aircraft that move uh, the orbiter from California back to Florida if we happen to land in California, as well as a few other specialized aircraft. So in that role, I play um, a variety of jobs. Um, part of it is technical. Uh, my boss, the director, and I, as the deputy director, represent the crew on many high-level panels and boards, including, uh, for example, a shuttle board where we um, agree to make um, changes to the shuttle as required or determine whether or not we have flight rationale to go launch. Um, we're members of the mission management team, which is the team that meets during a shuttle flight each day to talk about the progress of the flight and would help make decisions in the events of um, when things don't go as planned. Um, we're also just very much managers in the sense that any manager of an organization is. So we're in charge of the budget for um, the astronaut office and the aircraft ops, uh, in, in charge of personnel, in charge of setting policy, and um, of uh, generally of representing the crews and the pilots um, throughout the agency. So uh, it's a very interesting job, lots of different and new challenges. And I, I sort of feel like my job now is to make sure that a lot of the astronauts that we have, about half of whom have never been in space, will get a chance to fly in space. Um, hopefully almost all of them on the shuttle, uh, many of them on the space station, and we're looking forward to the new um, lunar vehicle as well. So with that, I think what I'd like to do is um, answer questions that you have. So just please raise your hand. I'll call on you. And if you can just talk loudly enough that I can hear the question, that will be really helpful. So yes. So the question is, um, what did I think was the most challenging part of um, preparing to be an astronaut? And I think perhaps it's probably just the um, sure number of things that you're required to learn before you go on a shuttle flight. You have all these trainers who are experts in each of their areas um, trying to get you sort of to as much of an expert level as possible. And you sort of need to be a jack of all trades. You know, you, um, as a flight engineer, I needed to know all the systems in the shuttle in depth, you know, the propulsion systems, the electrical systems, the mechanical systems, the life support. Um, I also needed to know the robotic systems in depth. Um, and there were just a myriad of other things that you have to take care of and be responsible for. So it's just a, a lot of information and um, 
um, you're always wondering, is there some question I didn't ask, something I'm going to get up there wishing I knew about that I, I don't know about. So you're just trying to sort of organize your time, organize your thoughts, and, and try to go into space as prepared as possible. Fortunately, after my first flight, and I think this happens to everybody, you come back and you have a way better idea <laughs> of what you really need to concentrate on in order to get ready for a space flight. Yes? Um, what has been the most gratifying project you've ever worked on? Uh, the question is, what has been the most gratifying project I've ever worked on? It's, you know, so it's hard to separate maybe just one thing out of all the things I've done in the astronaut office, but um, obviously just the chance to participate in human space exploration to me has been just a fabulous experience. And one of the gratifying parts, which I probably didn't talk as much about as I should have, is, is just the opportunity to work with other wonderful people and to be part of a team. I think that's a very, very rewarding part of being an astronaut. Um, I know in graduate school, I mean, you may have a research group, but a lot of times, you know, you spend the majority, at least I did, I spent the majority of the time in a lab by myself. Um, yeah, as an astronaut, you're a member of a team. And, and you have sort of different levels of that team. There, there's obviously the crew that you're on, which could be five, six, or seven people. And then there's the team of people that train that crew. And you get very close to the trainers that you spend a lot of time with. And then there's sort of the larger flight control team, um, the flight director, all the people in mission control who are supporting your mission, the people that, um, all the people that helped pull your mission together, that did flight design, that worked out the trajectories, the attitudes that the shuttle would fly during the flight. You know, there's just a whole group of people that are sort of this larger team that's supporting you. And so when you go fly a flight and things work out really well and you accomplish the science that you wanted to do or you accomplish your portion of the assembly of the space station, um, it's just a great feeling to have worked together and have everybody pull together and work through numerous problems and challenges to make that happen. Yes? You had said that one of your jobs was to uh, make sure that everyone part of an astronaut has a chance to fly, but that's because you can't pass the program, and there'll be a gap between the end of the shuttle program and the beginning of the next sort of exploration vehicle. What's going to happen to that program? Uh, that's one of the um, challenges that we're working with right now. We're doing some strategic planning, and that's actually one of my jobs, is to say, <clears throat> what, what does the astronaut office need to look at like five years from now in 2011, which will be right after the end of the shuttle program, but we'll still have astronauts flying to the station, and we'll um, be preparing for the first um, uh, human flights on the new vehicle, which we're calling the Crew Exploration Vehicle right now. The first manned test flight could be as early as 2012. And then five years after that, when we expect the space station to either have shut down or be winding down, and we're really focusing on the lunar missions, what should the astronaut office be like? So we're trying not to use too much of the shuttle model. Where, um, of course, um, everybody within NASA is working at the definition of you know how many people, how many crews are there going to be per year, how many people per crew, and and we're trying to look at all that information. But we're also trying to say. What types of training should we be providing these people that we don't provide now? Or should we have a different model? Right now, we select people in as pilots or as mission specialist astronauts. Well, once the shuttle is gone, we may never have a vehicle that actually has a stick in it anymore. So do we really need to make that distinction? Um, we may just want to look as um, people with piloting skills as a very needed skill. 
Um, it, but in much the same way, we need people who are medical doctors or people who are geologists or, you know, various other skills. And they um, will all probably go through the same tra training program and all be eligible to be commanders of missions, whereas right now on the shuttle, only the pilot astronauts are eligible to be commanders. Um, we're also, um, as we moved from shuttle into the space station and people started staying for months on board space station, we realized that we weren't paying enough attention to how you live in an isolated remote environment with one or two other people for months at a time. And so we've started up sort of um, a leadership um, remote environment sort of training program that we really run out of the astronaut office. Um, we use outside expertise, like we send people off on trips with the National Outdoor Leadership School, Knowles Training, where they, they go off in uh, Wyoming or Montana for 10 days at a time and with um, experienced instructors talk about leadership, about followership, and you know, each day somebody in the group has a chance to be the commander. Um, we send people off for cold weather exercises where now there's no instructors with them, they're only um, sort of um, off observing and people have to understand how to work in a difficult remote environment. Um, we have people go off to undersea laboratories off Key Largo and sort of go through a mission there where you're doing actual science um, for scientists that have um, sort of put in um, proposals for science to be done um, in this underwater uh, environment, but you're also learning what it's like to be uh, away from the environment. And, and this is really good to get um, experienced astronauts with rookie astronauts to give you an idea of what to expect. So we're trying to expand our ideas of, you know, what other things should we be providing people who will be going to the moon for six months and then later on, of course, um, years-long missions to Mars. So we're in the midst of planning that. We've, we've got some ideas, but, you know, we have a, a ways to go to really define what is an astronaut going to need and what is an astronaut going to be like ten years from now. Yes. So the question is, in my training for another flight, um, although I'd love to go into space again, uh, no, I'm, I'm actually in a, in a different role now as a manager and, and helping to get um, our current astronauts trained um, into space and representing them around the agency. We have about, um, we have a little over 50 astronauts in the office who have not yet had a chance to fly in space, so we're looking at getting them into space down here. So the question is, um, private companies now are getting into the space business, and is the role of a, of a government-employed um, astronaut going to change? And the question is, I, I don't think we really know yet. For the type of missions um, that we're talking about in terms of going to the moon, I think for now we're staying with the, the model that we have now, where people will still come to work for NASA and um, be trained by NASA and be um, NASA astronauts. But, um, you know, if you're one of the pilots on a, um, a Burt Rutan vehicle, that's going to take people into um, suborbital flight and have 20 minutes of zero G and have it be sort of a tourist um, operation. Well, who are those people going to be? Um, 
And are they going to have um, anything to do with um, the astronauts that we have now? I mean, some of our astronauts who are done flying at NASA are thinking, gee, maybe <laughs> there's an opportunity for me to stay um, in an exciting business where new vehicles are being developed. Um, it's for a different purpose, at least for now, but it's, um, but it's an exciting area that really hasn't been a career option before. Um, so I would expect that to still be pretty attractive to um, especially people with test piloting experience. And beyond that, who knows? I mean, there may be opportunities at some point in the future for people to go up to orbiting space stations. Um, potentially as tourists or visitors of one kind or another, and, you know, just the same way you might go to a lab to do guest science, you might get an opportunity to do that. So I think there will be other models in the future, um, but at least for the immediate future where we see NASA heading in the next 15, 10, 20 years, um, we're still going with the, the government-employed model. Let's call on somebody who hasn't, with sunglasses. Um, can you comment um, personally as well as um, in the role of a NASA manager on what you think the Chinese or how you think the Chinese will influence NASA in the next 10 to 15 years? Um, and is that something that will you know, influence NASA's next moves or how, how is that being dealt with? The question is about um, the Chinese and their um, space exploration plans and what they've been able to achieve so far and how that's going to influence NASA. I'd say it's really hard to say. You know, I was actually kind of surprised that there wasn't a lot more um, interest and talk in the media about what the Chinese have achieved. I mean, up to now in the history of the planet Earth, there have only been two countries that have um, launched people into space, and now we have a third. To me, that's a, a really, um, that's a milestone. Um, where that is all going to head in terms of NASA policy, it's really hard to say right now. Um, certainly nobody wants to say, I don't think anybody's at the point where what the Chinese are doing are really influencing our plans. Um, NASA has always wanted to, to um, go back to Mars. There's always been some debate, should we go to the moon first or not? Um, we think that is the right thing to do so that you can test out those technologies when you're only three days away from Earth instead of nine months away from Earth. Um, so that's something that we've always wanted to do. Um, so it, I think it really remains to be seen um, exactly what influence the Chinese may have on NASA policy or vice versa. Um, but it's a very interesting development in the history of um, human space exploration. Yes? What facets of your background experience do you think was possible for your selection to the astronaut program over under uh, You know, it's kind of like the question, how did you get into Stanford, you know, and everybody, you kind of speculate, but you never really know. <laughs> it's the same type of question, but I'm, I have been on a selection board in addition to having been selected, so I at least have a little bit of insight into the process. And so obviously, um, you start just by looking at people's um, folders, just very much in the same way an admissions department looks at people's folders here. And, and you're, you have so many applicants that, you don't really need to take anybody that hasn't done really, really well in school. <laughs> so even though there are obviously people who could do very well as astronauts, if, if they don't have um, a very strong educational background, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you can just use that as a way to help 
get the numbers down. So of course looking at people's educational background is important. And obviously um, the outstanding education that I got at Stanford and that Stanford is known for is certainly I know was a, an important factor for me. Um, then they look at um, what have you done since school. Most people are between 30 and 40 when they're selected, although we've p selected people as old as the mid-40s. So these aren't generally people just out of school. They've had a chance to have a, some part of their career. And so they're looking, have these people um, been uh, on the fast track in their career? Have they been promoted early or put in positions of responsibility, increasing responsibility, um, wherever they are, whether it's research labs or companies or in the military or whatever? Um, they obviously look at recommendations from people uh, on that. And, um, and then, although um, there's no rule that mission specialists have to be pilots, they do look at people's aviation background. And um, obviously, they want people to, people can be very, very um, excellent in a research or an educational environment and not be particularly talented in an operational setting where, you, where the qualities that you're looking for are situational awareness, the ability to prioritize, um, quick decision making, that kinds of things. So if someone has an aviation background or some other background where, where they've exhibited those techniques, that's obviously of interest to the um, selection board. And then um, I would say astronauts tend to have a lot of interests um, outside what they do. You'll find a lot of them are musicians like I am or athletes and have done very well in that. And, and I think it just speaks to people who are interested in learning things and have always um, been very serious about working hard to achieve a certain level of skill or expertise in whatever they do. And finally, um, as a member of the selection board, you know, in the end what you're really sitting there thinking is, would I want to be cooped up in a small space with this person for a long period of time? Uh, so, <laughs> um, I mean, it really comes down to that. So, you know, people who have been on teams, who know what it's like to participate as a team member, um, often that quality, well, there may be something in their folder that sort of speaks to that or one of their recommendations may talk about it, or just the way that they conduct themselves in their interview make it clear whether they sort of have that sense of needing to be aware of other people um, and being able to function well on a team. So um, I can't say that I had really worked a lot in a team environment um, when I was selected, um, but they did ask a little bit about my music background, and I talked a little bit about how being in an orchestra or wind ensemble was being part of a team, because um, to me there are a lot of uh, parallels. To, and if you've been in athletics on a team, there are a lot of parallels to that, to the kind of team environment that we have at NASA. Yes. Could you comment from there uh, on, and say something about the dropout rate among the uh, candidates? Uh, um, the dropout rate among astronauts? Um, well, it's actually, once you're selected as an astronaut, it's um, almost to zero because we try, um, we try not to select a lot and then um, weed them out through training. We rather weed them out in the selection process because it is, it is expensive to train astronauts. I mean, you're using expensive assets and um, people have to run these simulators and, and, and train you. So. They, uh, we would rather try to do that in the selection process. So just about everybody that gets selected eventually flies, assuming that there's the opportunity on a, on a space vehicle to do so. Occasionally, of course, a medical issue will crop up that will make somebody ineligible to fly. 
and that's um, some, sometimes where we lose people. Now, once a person has actually flown in space, um, there's really, really quite a wide range of um, options that people choose. For example, some people fly once and then leave the office and go on to do other things. That's obviously not what we what we would prefer because we've invested a lot in their training. But you know, it's not like you sign a contract, so people um, really are free to leave and go take other jobs either within NASA or, or external to NASA. Most people, however, stay a while and try to fly a few times. That at least was the model in, in the shuttle era, which is what we've been doing the last 25 years or so. Um, some people have stayed there for their whole career after being selected and end up retiring um, from NASA, even from the astronaut office itself. A lot of other people will stay 10, 15, 20 years and go off and work um, in a variety of places, universities, um, nonprofits. I know of a couple who are museum directors. But of course, they'll go into the corporate world, especially aerospace. They'll go work for Boeing and, and Lockheed, and, and especially for the folks that are supporting us right at Johnson Space Center. You'll see a lot of former astronauts in the executives um, that work in those companies. Yes? <laughs> I don't have any volleyball. Um, right now on the space station, I can tell you um, that um, in addition to having um, a cycle ergometer, they have a treadmill, and they also have resistive exercise devices. So the treadmill um, is obviously a little bit different than what you'd have to use here on Earth because you have to wear a harness that's attached to the treadmill so that otherwise you'd, you'd you know, bounce once and then you'd just go to the top of the space station and you wouldn't really be running. So you, you wear a, spe a special harness and it takes a little bit of getting used to. It's not exactly the same as running here on Earth, but it is good exercise and a lot of people like to do it. What we found is really helpful for preventing bone loss though is the resistive exercise devices. So they have a set of things that are, I guess you could think of them sort of as bungee cords, but they're weighted and you can um, attach different loads to them. And so you can do exercises that are similar uh, maybe to kind of like doing squats here on Earth where you work out um, your legs and your arms, and it's particularly helpful for preventing bone loss. So people on board the station who are there for six months at a time, it's incredibly important to, to exercise, and they spend about two hours a day doing it in order to keep their health, prevent too much bone loss, and to be prepared to return to Earth. And um, there's, of course, a rehabilitation period once you get back on Earth, but at least they're in a good position to start that rehabilitation when they get home by doing that exercise. Yes? How much of a factor will the duration of the Mars mission be? Is that, is that a major obstacle, the duration itself? So uh, the question is about the duration of a, a Mars mission, and right now, of course, it would probably be a couple of years because you're talking about several months out, several months back, and then um, a certain amount of time actually at Mars. So there are a number of issues with that. One would be the exercise, although we think we're learning a lot about that. Um, but another would be um, other health issues, and one of them, is, of course, is the space radiation. That's a big issue for us, and one of the things that we're trying to study more um, and probably will make that a focus of um, some of the lunar missions prior to going to Mars is understanding more about how you can mitigate um, uh, the effects of space radiation on people.
so, so that's uh, a big one. And there's a few other things about the duration, and certainly one is just the ability to cope being away in a remote environment, again, which is why we're trying to look at programs that can help um, prepare people for that. Yes? What was your PhD thesis on? What was my PhD thesis on? Um, I was uh, working with uh, Professor Joe Goodman in the Electrical Engineering Department, and um, his general field of study is um, optical information processing for A-optics. So I was uh, looking at using a, um, um, a material called a photorefractive material to use as sort of a real-time holographic device uh, but use it in processing information or images. So you'd have certain image information that was sort of essentially being read into the crystal using um, light sources, lasers. And by the properties of the crystal itself, the information that was coming out was different in some way. So I was looking at sort of nonlinear processing. And we were using it to, for example, to um, uh, characterize how you might use it to determine defects in a periodic image. Um, because of the nonlinear effects inside the, the um, structure and other types of um, uh, nonlinear processing. But that's what it was on. Yes? You mentioned space radiation. How yes. How well do our laptops work? Well, that's actually something that we have to spend a fair amount of time, and not us personally in the astronaut office, but other people at Johnson Space Center um, qualifying. We put them through a... Um, Essentially, any piece of equipment that goes into space has to go through a sort of a space hardening and space certification program. And it turns out that different models of the laptops can react very differently to the space environment, and some are very prone to single event upsets, and others not so much. So we'll usually pick a, pro um, a platform and certify it, and then use it for a number of years, even though, um, you know, it, um, just the laptops that you use at your desk, you, you turn over and get an upgrade much more frequently than we do, but because of the expense of doing the certification, we don't upgrade nearly as frequently. And then when we do, we'll usually pick two or three models that are out there at the time um, that are new and, and put them through this process and look to see which ones are going to be able to handle the radiation. But it, it definitely is an issue, and, and sometimes it's, um, you know, not obvious, you know, that um, one model might perform much better than another, and, and it actually does when you, when you test it out, so. Yes? Um, I, I found it very interesting that you, um, you chose your career in astronautics somewhat late in the career path, I suppose, and I wanted to know if you had any advice for your students who are had a career path. So the question is about, do I have any advice for students who are looking toward a career path? And I assume, I don't know if you mean specifically as an astronaut or maybe at NASA. Um, yeah, I'm sort of the poster child for indecision. I uh, didn't really mention this in my speech, but I had like five different majors as an undergrad, um, including uh, English, journalism, uh, a few other things. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, when I went to college, I didn't have a good idea of what I wanted to do. I was interested in a lot of different things, took a lot of different classes, and fortunately I was at a school that didn't charge tuition, so an extra year wasn't that big a deal. But I ended up in physics mainly through my interest in math. Um, I, had taken a lot of, I, um, I had taken a lot of math in high school um, so that I had tested out of, you know, the first semester of calculus in college. And I ended up taking the rest of the calculus series in college, even though I wasn't 
in a major that required me to do so. I just had always enjoyed math. So as I continued to look around for a major, um, and I was asking the other people in my math classes, um, you know, why are you in here? And they're like, well, I have to take it. I'm a physics major, I'm a chemistry major, or whatever. Uh, I decided, well, I should go find out what they're doing in physics. I really, it, you know, it's a little, I, I hate to admit this also, but you know, I didn't take any physics or chemistry in high school. So I came to college um, kind of woefully unprepared in the science area, but what, what sort of bailed me out was the math. Because um, when I went to uh, the physics department, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you two stories. First, I, I went to the electrical engineering department because someone said, hey, you should go check out electrical engineering. This is all at my undergraduate school, not at Stanford. And, and you know, this was 1976. There weren't very many women in engineering then. And so I talked to the, the advisor there, and, and he was like, well, you know, engineering's really hard. And yeah, we had a, we had a, 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 a woman that came through here not, not too long ago, and, and she did pretty well, but you know, he kept picking up these, he was an electrical engineering professor, picking up these little components on his desk, like capacitors and things, you'll have to work with these, and you know. And so, so I'll contrast that with my other experience. I mean, he didn't even ask me anything like, have you taken any math classes? You know, something that might be relevant. Um, so I went to the physics department, and I had actually taken a non-major class just as a, you know, a general ed requirement. It had done very well, and, one of, and the physics professor um, said, you know, you should come talk to us about thinking about physics. So I went and talked to a professor who was advising in that department, and so he, he said, well, tell me what, you know, what other classes have you had? Have you had any math classes? So I told him what I had done in calculus, and I had done very well. And, and you know, he was like, oh, that is great, because you know, the number one thing that holds people back in physics is the fact that math is the language of physics, and if you don't have the math background, it's very hard to move on in physics. So he goes, oh, you know, you'll, you'll be great here. And, and then he started talking about, and you know, we have these specialized programs, um, so if you want to go into graduate school here at San Diego State. We have a specialized program in radiation health physics. We have this and that. And he was very encouraging. Well, for somebody who didn't have a strong, you know, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, I mean, obviously, of course, it made a difference. I mean, I wanted to go to a department that wanted me and that thought I was going to do well. And so I ended up in physics. And um, I, while I was there, um, I think on the bulletin board one day there was a, you know, a, an announcement about some summer jobs at Los Alamos, um, and of course I wanted to get some kind of research experience, so I, I applied for one of those and got it and worked there, and, and the staff member there, the, uh, I worked with a women's staff member there, um, which was pretty unusual, um, and so she was talking to me about, well, have you thought about graduate school? And I was like, oh, no, I've, you know, I've never given that a thought. And so she was the one that kind of got me thinking about that, and she had actually um, sponsored a conference at Los Alamos where Professor Joe Goodman from Stanford had talked, and she was saying, you should go talk to him. And um, a couple years later, I realized I had an interest in Fourier optics, because again, through my math classes, I got interested in Fourier transforms, used Ron Bracewell's book, and got interested in the idea of, of lenses being able to take Fourier transforms, did a senior project there, and that's really what led me to Stanford. So that's, that's sort of a little bit more about my path, and, and everybody has a little different path. 
But you know, in thinking about what NASA is looking for, what NASA wants, um, first of all, for the astronaut office itself, there's no one particular major that they're looking for. Um, you know, you don't need to be an aeroastro major. We have a lot of aeroastro people in the astronaut office, but we have really every type of engineer um, also represented, and we have chemists and um, geologists and. Um, uh, medical doctors, as I mentioned, and, and a veterinarian as well. So they're looking for anybody that has a good science or engineering background. Now, as we look forward to um, going to the moon or Mars, I think we will still try to keep that um, diversity of background in terms of what people have studied and what their careers have been in the office. But you can imagine um, that doctors, and people especially who are doctors and engineers, we have a few of those, or doctors and pilots, I mean, that's obviously a very attractive combination for the astronaut office. Um, I think the ability um, here at Stanford to work multidisciplinary so that you've maybe seen some of science and engineering and maybe other things too is going to be attractive because you're going to expect it on a mission to be, again, be a jack of all trades um, and to be able to quickly learn about a lot of different areas and hopefully contribute in a lot of different areas. You know, you probably only have four crew members when you go to the moon, six when you go to Mars. So everything that needs to be done, you know, as part of a society in a habitat there needs to be done by those six people. So the variety of experience is going to be really important, but it's all, of course, grounded in a real good technical engineering background. So I wouldn't worry so much about, you know, what major should I pick. I would say pick one that you like because if you do well in it, you're much more likely to be the kind of person that's going to eventually go on and be of interest to NASA. And then look around and realize that having talents and skills and experiences in a lot of different areas is going to be um, important to NASA also. Any other questions? One here. So the question are, um, what do I say to space exploration critics or what do I think the um, rationale for doing space exploration is? Um, to me, it's just a very fundamental um, notion that as humans, we need to understand our world, and for a long time that just co consisted of traveling somewhere over land or overseas, and we've realized there are these other frontiers to explore, and science is an important frontier out there to explore for a number of reasons, to find out more about ourselves and our capabilities, to understand more scientifically about um, the universe and, and how our solar system was formed and um, all the um, science that makes up that. Also, eventually someday humans are going to need to go somewhere besides Earth for whatever reason. Um, uh, conditions on Earth may not be livable either for human reasons or for natural reasons. I believe that we need to be thinking ahead and looking towards that and we're just taking those first baby steps. And it's just hard for me to believe um, that people have really considered the longer-term ramifications when they say, well, this isn't something we should be doing, this isn't something we need to be doing now. Uh, I think if you just look back at history, that the countries that uh, went on exploring were the ones that emerged um, and stayed as um, the people, the countries that influenced the evolution and the civilization of the world and those that ended up pulling back. 
um, really lost ground in that whole uh, world history. So I just kind of see this as a continuation of that. There are many other reasons that you could point to. Um, a lot of it is um, obviously it fuels an industry that um, is very productive for our country economically, technologically, um, and while NASA is just one part of that, there are a lot of people that do choose to go into science and engineering because of the role of space exploration. They may or may not end up working in space exploration, but a lot of times that was their initial motivation. And of course, a lot of the things that have de been developed for space exploration have gone on and fueled um, other industries. And kind of one good example is telemedicine, where um, NASA really has pushed that because they've always had a need for small, compact, lightweight um, medical equipment that can be used by someone quite remote from a medical person or a medical facility. And they have sort of driven that field of telemedicine. So uh, to me, it's just. You know, there's no question this is something we should be doing. The question is what exactly should we be doing? How should we be allocating our resources? I, I did get a question before the talk that I, I promised I would address, and, and that was a question a little bit about um, work-life balance and, you know, is it possible to have a real life and be an astronaut and have a family? And, and I'd like to report that, yes, it is possible. Um, I think... Um, as with, with any career, it requires some creativity and, and flexibility. Um, I'm married. I have two uh, boys. They're ages seven and five. So two of my space flights were before I had kids. And my third space flight, I had a one-year-old. And um, during my space, uh, my fourth space flight, I had a three-and-a-half-year-old. And, and my youngest son turned two while I was in orbit. Um, so um, NASA has been very good about um, accommodating women astronauts. Um, of course, you can't train for or fly on a space mission if you're pregnant, um, but um, you can take, um, you can work the ground jobs that we all work in between flights anyway, anyway working in mission control, um, supporting um, ver all kinds of aspects of the human uh, spaceflight program. And you can continue to do that um, while starting a family and while, while raising a family. And then when you're ready to go fly again, they'll, they'll go put you back in the, um, the group that's ready to go fly. Uh, there can be a lot of travel in this job. I haven't traveled as much as the people who, for example, have trained to fly on the space station. They spend 60% of their time in Russia. So they're, you know, four weeks there, six weeks back here, six weeks over there, four weeks back in Houston. That, that I have to admit, is very tough on a family life. And I don't think there have been any women with children who have yet signed up for that because it's, it, that really is hard. It's hard on the men, too, who have children. It's, I mean, I'm, it's hard on everybody, but I think it's just been very difficult. And one of the reasons that I didn't sign up to do that was um, it came about a time when I was just starting my family, and um, I wasn't willing to be away from them 60% of the time. Um, but in general, the astronaut job um, involves some travel, but just in the way that a lot of other jobs do. And so it's great to have a husband who will pitch in and... And we have a very good nanny who's very good about coming in at odd hours and, and traveling with my husband and my kids to Florida to watch me go launch and, and things like that. But um, the rewards of, of having a great job and having a family, too, I think are just exceptional. Well, thank you very much.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.